welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Robert Vitalis, professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the recent book, Oilcraft, The Myths of Scarcity and Security That Haunt U.S. Energy Security. Bob, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's such a pleasure. This is a dream of mine. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, your book is a kind of precision-guided debunking of the prevailing myths about U.S. foreign policy in and around the Persian Gulf. Namely, the myth that our posture in the Middle East is necessary, at least in part, to protect the free flow of oil, and in particular that the U.S. relationship with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is useful towards this end. Now, you don't say that the conventional wisdom is slightly off or operating on some old assumptions that need updating. You argue that this belief is based on essentially a bunch of gobbledygook, and the persistence of these ideas amounts to a kind of irrational religious dogma. So let's get into it. Talk about these persistent myths and explain how U.S. policy, in fact, does not protect the free flow of oil in this way. Well, you know, I did not know that I would encounter all the myths that I, you know, came upon as I as I pursued this research. But, you know, by the end of this project, um, as you might have noticed, uh, what I discover is is that like our assumptions about grand strategy toward the Persian Gulf are really constructed on a set of, you know, uh, premises that just don't hold true. Um, and that over over the decades, more and more of these like kind of uh, uh, factitious ideas have been thrown out there in support of a policy that in general doesn't make sense. But I shouldn't have to tell someone from the Cato Institute that it doesn't make sense because Cato has been alone for decades in publishing folks who have said exactly that. So, for instance, I've been influenced, I mean, it's as far back as Leon Haydar. Now, many, many decades ago, making claims uh, similar to mine, you know, but the, the, the most basic claim is that you don't have to do anything in particular uh, to guarantee the flow of oil, uh, uh, you know, to, to markets, um, especially for the United States. But for some re for some set of reasons that we could go into some uh, um, many, many old ideas uh, are mixed into this. Uh, people believe that you must deploy a, a force in order to secure this access. Now, and the crazy thing about that, right, is, uh, you know, it's uh, Andrew Basevich pointed this out, right? You know, in some sense, much of this story has to do with the 1973 so-called oil crisis. Um, as you noticed in my book, before that, for for most of the 20th century, people believed that states went to war for resources of all kinds, raw materials of all kinds, and that somehow the the lack of access to those raw materials uh, were uh, uh, existential, right? They were, were an existential threat to states. These were these are old beliefs. After 1973 and the again, so-called oil crisis or the Arab oil embargo, um, we stopped talking about, you know, the crises of access to resources of all kinds. And it's kind of like our beliefs consolidated on this idea that, in fact, it was oil that was that was that was uh, key for us. Now, what Basevich pointed out, and it's quite interesting, uh, actually, is that 
after 1973, right? You, if you go to the Pentagon, you know, the Pentagon Department of Defense releases an annual, you know, kind of uh, a strategic review, right? You know, what, what the major, major strategic threats for the United States are. So we're in the midst of this oil crisis. So the oil crisis happened. And then, yep, yeah, but in 1974, 1975, 1976, 1977, there's no statements about the need to uh, 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 send the Fifth Fleet or develop, we didn't have a Fifth Fleet then, but to develop a military capacity in order to secure access to oil. That really is a story of the of the you know 78 79 period the end of the carter regime the 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 fight to defeat carter and the obsessions of all of a sudden the obsessions of people like zbigniew brzezinski with um with, with this belief that somehow the soviets were going to take over the oil unless we started a unless we started uh, uh, to defend it, right? There was this belief that the Soviets were going to come down and take over the oil they were heading for, it. or there was a second belief, right, that um, uh, with, the, with the revolution in Iran in 1978-79 and the threats to the Saudis, that if some kind of radical Islamic regime came to power in the Persian Gulf, they would uh, cut the oil off from the United States, ostensibly like they had in 1973. I keep saying ostensibly because, in fact, oil wasn't really cut off from the United States in 1973. But people held on to these two ideas. Either the Islamists are going to create the stranglehold or the Soviets were going to come take over the oil and that would, you know, that would lead to the dissolution of the West, the end of NATO. All sorts of scary scenarios get generated from that. And, you know, again, like Cato was in the lead on this, uh, basically sort of saying this makes no sense. So I'm going to ask about some of those historical examples uh, in a little bit so we can unpack them. But, you know, both left and right have different versions of being very wrong on this. Talk about the, the different political manifestations of this idea. You know, you you know, I'm having a fight with two right wingers. I don't right wingers too strong. Two classic international relations realists right now about uh, whether I'm right or not about this book, and I and I'm going to have to produce a a response to their criticisms. The reason I'm bringing that up is if we just step back and think about all the varieties of ways people have argued. The, people have argued for the necessity of the United States uh, 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 dominating the Persian Gulf in order to secure the flow of oil. We would have this list, you know, of ten or eleven equally factitious but different claims, right? So one that everyone believes is that oil is mostly going to the United States. So it was, you know, it was for, it was for the refineries on the East and West coast of the United States. We know that that's not true. Um, and we, and we, and, and we can, we can go through all those various iterations or the various ideas people have deployed in terms of the defense of this idea. But a funny thing is that the left in the United States has adopted in, in uh, the mirror image of what Zbigniew Brzezinski believed 
in the late 1970s. It, they, it makes no sense uh, from my perspective, but they believe it nonetheless. And it was something like this. Brzezinski, you know, because he imagined himself as a, as a you know, grand strategist. People are constantly illustrating his ideas with chessboards and the like. You know, Brzezinski made some argument like this. The Soviets are heading toward the Persian Gulf because what they want to do is seize control of the oil of the Persian Gulf. And once they do that, that will lead them, that will lead the Soviets somehow to be able to break up the Western NATO alliance. The idea would be that somehow Germany, Japan, Europe as a whole would defect to the Soviet side in order to be able to secure the oil resources that they now get from the Persian Gulf. Now, he never explained, well, how, how, was, how were the Soviets going to actually do that? What would, was it that the Saudis would become communists or something? Or, you know, would they create a communist regime? And of course, this was a moment, right, to make it even more complicated. This was a moment when the Soviets were very interested in selling more and more oil to the West and actually building, doing joint ventures with, with Germany in order to sell oil through pipelines, et cetera. So this was a moment when the Soviets were very, very, were getting more and more involved in oil markets. And yet there was this like kind of crazy idea that somehow the Soviets were going to cut all this off. The left adopts, or I'm going to call it the sophisticated left. The sophisticated left adopts this idea that the United States controls Europe and Japan by being in the Persian Gulf, right? It's nothing to do with securing the flow of oil to the United States, but it's about, uh, I guess, holding like a sort of Democles, right? Over the heads of the Japanese and Europeans, right? If they don't go along with the U.S. global project of, I don't know what that would be, capitalism or something, um, that they would somehow be cut off from oil. And nonetheless, that also makes no sense to me because because there is virtually no there's no evidence I shouldn't say virtually there is no evidence that this is how uh, things work that Japan or Europe or any European leader has said hey you know it's you know we can't go along with U.S. project X Y or Z because they control the oil etc. Right so you know some nationalists might hold that in 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 their minds but. If, if we just stopped and thought about it, we would see that there's no evidence to buttress that kind of claim, nor do we have examples from past, you know, moments that would sort of, that would allow us to say, uh, analogize to the present moment. But I, you know, I, folks believe in this power of control or hegemony or dominance, um, and they believe so, so wholeheartedly that they don't bother to look for evidence of it. They, they just, you know, it's just true for them. And that's the sophisticated left, right? The you know the more mundane argument is simply the United States controls this thing. And sometimes they say, sometimes they believe the Saudis do what the United States wants. That that's the control, um, or you know they 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 generate lots of arguments for it. Since my books come out, I've had lefties who before this would say things like the Americans control the price of oil through through the Saudis because the Saudis are clients of the United States. An idea that's, you know, has been debunked over and over again by lefties and not lefties for decades. The idea that somehow the Saudis do anything because the United States tells them to do it or that they're weak or somehow uh, 
a need to do so. And we can get into that. So now that the book has come out, I've had these left lefties who have kind of revised themselves. It, it, it's instant revisionism. And they say, see, Vitalis proves that control is really about uh, seniorage, meaning it is about oil being denominated in dollars. And that's the key. That's the secret that the fifth fleet is protecting. Right, uh, that somehow the Saudis, the rest of uh, uh, oil marketeers, uh, market their oil in dollars because the United States coerces them to doing so. The only problem with that argument is, is that uh, the decision to market one's oil in dollars or denominate one's oils in dollars predates, right, by many years. Uh, the United States uh, uh, exercise of power in the Persian Gulf before we're anywhere there. And my book tries to demonstrate, you know, when that decision was made and why. And it's quite useful for the United States. We'd be grumpy if it, it uh, if that changes. But the notion that one has to coerce uh, oil producers uh, to do this is the problem. You also go into the history of where these ideas came from, and it turns out it kind of comes out of other badly discredited ideas like mercantilism and imperialism and even racism. Specifically with within the imperialist ideas, you know, um, some were able to to make note of this back in the day. But you mentioned how France's colonies, for for instance, ended up actually being a drag on the state, a net loss, where the colonies weren't providing much raw materials to the home country, despite the costs of maintaining them. And you know, I think that was true of the British Empire as well. Colonies did little to enhance the physical security of the home front, but by the mid nineteenth century or so, they frequently cost more than they yielded in imperial rents. And you make a kind of similar comparison with the United States. You write that U.S. Persian Gulf force projection has cost about as much as the Cold War did, and in virtually any year exceeds the value of all exports from the region to the rest of the world. Now, that's an enormous cost for something, for, for an objective that is basically imaginary. In two ways, it's imaginary. Back to that claim about there are varieties of rationales for this uh, constant projection of U.S. power in the Gulf. So think about President Obama. President Biden hasn't said this very, uh, very uh, yet. He's not had to articulate something like this. But but President Obama used to talk about the need to secure continuous access to oil as if this was a threat. Now you want to parse that in two ways. D does that mean in the day-to-day -day running of oil markets, right? Or put it in another way, peacetime, right? And for some people, it it says yes, but you know most economists uh, say you know that makes no sense because in peacetime the markets will <laughs> the markets will supply your oil to you, and some strategists have sort of said you know pushing the limiting conditions of we're not talking about peacetime or the daily operations of oil markets, but let's say in the extraordinary uh, uh, possibilities of war or conflict, right? And we can break that down into. In, in uh, to two kinds of, uh, of problems and look at them. One would be like this vision that, you know, a, a revolution, say, in, in uh, Saudi Arabia is going to, you know, cause some spike in oil prices or be a problem. And uh, because the West is dependent on Persian Gulf oil, will be a drag on the economy and uh, challenge, challenge uh, capitalism and so forth. And a strategist like Barry Posen sort of says, well, you know, uh, 
a revolution would not be a good thing, but the United States has no capacity to stop revolutions from happening anywhere. So one would one would think that you'd be better off working on other strategies to deal with, you know, the prospects of potential cutoffs, et cetera, by stockpiling oil, expanding your numbers of resources, et cetera, right? So there's this vision of, you know, some extraordinary moment a Saddam arises or a bin Laden arises or a revolution happens. And my answer to that is, you know, oil is cut off all the time, right? Through refinery fires. Uh, we saw in the um, Suez Canal not too long ago, right, that, you know, uh, oil and other goods were cut off. And it's not as if the Western economy goes into a tailspin, right? So there's a lot of exaggeration going on there. The second limiting condition is even worse, which is this idea you know, kind of like right, right out of a risk board game model or fantasies of the of the world being involved in another, you know, global spanning conflict. And since, you know, the last one happened 70 years ago, people take uh, problematical lessons from World War II to imagine what might happen in the war of the 21st century, say, with China. And, the, and so for some people, the whole reason the Fifth Fleet is in the Persian Gulf and Central Command exists is to be able to protect those flows um, in the extraordinary uh, condition of a world war. They, they argue that without any evidence that this is in fact how the Pentagon or Defense Department is thinking, or there's a potential for a global conflict on, the, on even on the horizon, right? It's the kind of thing, again, that a strategist like Barry Posen or a strategist like Patrick Porter says, you know, this, this makes no sense, but it somehow it makes sense in the minds of uh, analysts, uh, armchair analysts. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is, Back in the day, back at the end of World War One, right, uh, in in the 1920s, a, a kind of set of ideas emerged as the common sense wisdom that states had to go the extra mile to secure access to resources of all kinds, right. And I cannot, you know, a hundred years later, this makes virtually no sense to people, but it is in fact the case that statesmen and analysts and uh, 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 intellectuals were worried about access to resources of all kinds, cotton, copper, iron ore, right? And from about the 1920s to the 1970s, the common sense wisdom was that the United States government must do what it can to guarantee its supply of all these resources, because without doing so, it, we would likely be defeated in war and, and so forth. And th these were deeply rooted ideas of the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Now, we have to remind ourselves of one thing. In the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, France, Great Britain, the United States were not producing those resources on their own in places like, you know, they called it the tropics at the time, but, you know, uh, uh, in Africa, Asia, Latin America, in the Middle East, right? Firms were doing that work, right? So uh, an Aramco, the, which had the concession in Saudi Arabia or British Petroleum and so forth. And so really what those, really what was going on in the 20s, 30s, and 40s was this idea that we needed to back our national champions, our own firms uh, that had control of those oil concessions. Let's, let's just use oil as an example, or, you know, copper mines. We needed to back them because 
In the event of conflict, it would be the only way of guaranteeing access of those resources to the state itself, right? So you definitely don't want France controlling palm oil concessions if you're going to need them or rubber concessions or Great Britain controlling rubber concessions uh, in the course of war. In the British state thought the same thing and the French state thought the same thing. So they're all they're all backing their national champions. And a set of critics back in the 1920s said, you know, this makes no sense for a number of reasons. Okay, number one, there is no way to secure enough of the resources you need in case of war. So the example you alluded to, France in the late 19th century said, why are we embarking on this colonial policy in order to be able to have access to the resources that we need? You know, uh, otherwise French capitalism will be destroyed or French people won't be able to keep up, you know, their their, uh, standard of living and so forth. And each of the countries said these things. But when war breaks out, right? When World War I breaks out, it turns out that France still depended on the great powers for most of their vital resources. That colonial policy did nothing for them in the instance when the world went to war. Nonetheless, Great Britain, for example, used that same argument for why it had to go seek concessions for oil resources in places like Iraq. Uh, and were you know grumpy about the Americans because they were in Saudi Arabia and they're all fighting about the Iran concessions because they argued that only in, in you know in wartime they they would uh, need to be able to have access to those resources themselves rather than depend on the Allies. Well, what happened in World War II, as I show in my book, no no great power uh, was able to depend was able to guarantee their resources through colonies and in fact. The United States supplied most of the oil that Great Britain needed to persecute the war. So, so, so despite this like 20 year or 25 year uh, rationale for supporting their own firms holding those concessions, those concessions did nothing for the national state, for defense, for the well-being of peoples. You know, the best we could say is if you were Great Britain and it was a British oil company producing oil in Iraq and Persia, well, that did one thing. That brought lots of um, sterling to the British treasury, right? You know, because people have to have to buy the oil in denominated in British pounds or sterling and the same for the United States. But but having a firm run that concession means nothing or, or had no strategic value when war ar- ar- arises. So these analysts back in the 1920s, and I think this is, and I, I can show you analysts every decade saying the same thing. They said, you know what's the, you know what's a real threatening, the, the real threatening uh, force in global politics in the 20s and 30s is the is the backing of these firms by their states and thinking that if that if if an American firm gets the concession versus the British firm that this is going to hurt the United this is going to hurt Great Britain because if you actually believe that stuff you are in fact generating conflict scenarios you're creating the threatening situation out there so analysts in the 1920s argued you know it would be good the governments should get out of the business of backing these firms let them compete for the concessions um, because, and here's the obvious one, whether it's a British firm producing oil in Iraq or or a, a US firm producing oil in Saudi Arabia, those firms all sold that oil on the world market. 
two variety of buyers. They're not they they they're not going to cut off oil to any particular purchaser and and so forth. You mentioned um, the bombing of the Saudi facilities back in 2019 and the tanker clog in the Suez Canal earlier this year. Um, it sort of seems like these are the types of events, a block to these choke points that are supposed to set off this global uh, crisis and tailspin. And yet we didn't do much in direct response to them. And it seems like global markets handled them pretty well. Um, and so this happens, e but this happens even uh, in those cases where it's sort of universally expected that, um, you know, this was important. So I want to go back to this uh, 1973 oil crisis. Uh, you know, you discuss the threat as it was viewed at the times of, of regimes in the region trying to nationalize their oil industries and any domestic unrest that came with the possibility of new regimes that triggered our own attempts to squelch or reverse such development. And then with the 1973 oil crisis or Arab embargo, OPEC embargo, as, as it's often called, there's just an enormous amount of confusion about the causal mechanisms in this affair. So unpack it for us. But, okay, but let me just add one thing. As the decades, right, you know, move forward, more craziness is just, you know, kind of accepted as true, right? Without, uh, with, without, without thinking hard about it. So now we just, as I show in my book, virtually everyone thinks in 1973, OPEC embargoed when they can't even figure out what they think the embargo was, different analysts kind of say the United States or the United States and its Western allies or or the U.S. the U.S. and the world, right? But uh, uh, and they and they just you know produce these fictions basically or myths about, about that moment, and even scholars do the same thing. In 1973, two things happened. Okay, one real, one not so real. Um, oil prices increased right what i show in the book is the, the main reason those oil prices began to increase in 1972 73 and up to the october war in 73 when then they start to skyrocket is um, uh, a conflict situation is emerging in the middle east and with conflict markets and, and markets did not work the same way in the 70s as they do now we could maybe get back to that point but there was just this idea that both oil prices were, were rising before the the 1973 war between israel uh egypt uh syria and um uh, prices were rising beforehand and shortages had been experienced in the united states in particular in 72 though we forget that now and we started talking about an oil crisis in 1972 that had nothing to do about you know arab control of oil or embargoes etc we can talk about uh what was going on but when prices started to rise in in this in the uh late 72 early 73 and then as the war began oil producers were stuck right in an in an arrangement where they got none of the windfall of those uh rising prices because of the nature of the relationship that they had with the concessionaires still the western firms that were producing oil in their country so opec the organization you know formed in 1960 had a project it argued that it wanted more of the windfall from those rising prices. And the way they would do that was would be by increasing the, you know, what ultimately uh, amounts to the tax rate 
that they charged the Western firms as the Western firms sold their oil. That's called posted prices, which people confuse with the prices that they were actually paying on the world market. It was a kind of you know, accounting fiction that gave oil company, oil, oil producing states, uh, a, a certain return for a, a per barrel of oil, et cetera. OPEC wants to control a larger share of that, uh, of that, of that windfall. That definitely happened. And they exercised uh, a choice to raise the posted price or tax rate on their own. They did that. You know, they did that right as the war was beginning. So it gets so it gets confusing. People think it's somehow tied to the war. And it and it happens again in in that winter uh, and 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 leading that second big hike in prices in the posted prices or tax rates was the Shah of Iran, a close ally of the United States. Right. So there's the oil price rises, which happened. And then there were the things Now you're too young to remember it. But I was a freshman in college that year in commuting. So I was, you know, uh, uh, driving during uh, uh, the fall of 73. There was the so-called oil embargo uh, by a set of four uh, versus five Arab states um, that basically claimed we're going to we're going to embargo the United States. We're not going to sell any oil to the United States. And we're going to, first, they said, we're going to reduce output by 5% a month until the United States, you know, recognizes the rights of the Palestinians and the war, stop supporting Israel. Then they called for an embargo altogether. And what we have in the United States famously are the gasoline lines, right? So people remember the gasoline lines as proof positive that an embargo happened and that that embargo caused the gas lines. And what I've tried to do in my book is show that, you know, uh, uh, economists have demonstrated over and over again that that makes no sense. That one, one embargoes can't, embargoes, people might declare embargoes, but an oil, an oil producing country that did so would be uh, spiting itself, right? Because if it, decides not to sell oil somewhere, someone else is going to sell the oil to that place at the rising price. So they're, you know, losing basically. That was the that was the vision of my favorite economist and also someone who published for Cato at certain points, Maury Edelman. Uh, so embargoes can't work. And what economists have often shown, now these were, you know, these were the first neoconservative economists, but you know, I embrace them for this reason. They basically showed that the gas lines themselves were not a, was not a product of an embargo because in fact oil um, the supply of oil to the United States barely barely changed uh, despite the so-called embargo and that embargo was over six months later and there's virtually no sign of it if, if you look at the data for the year. But what caused the gas lines was the wage, were the wage and price controls that the Nixon administration had imposed, you know, before the oil crisis and kept in place in the United States for all of the 70s. So I know, you know, this is, I mean, this is a classically neoconservative uh, uh, reanalysis of that moment because liberal economists yeah. believed what at the time that this was all the, uh, machinations of the Western oil firms trying to raise prices and so forth and gain their windfalls, et cetera, because no one believed Saudis had the ability to do something like this, to embargo or raise the prices and so forth. Back at, back at that time, no one blamed OPEC in particular. They blamed the Western oil firms. And that's what drove the, neo, the first neoconservative economists to say, you know, you're getting this story all wrong. 
that it that it's in fact the wage it's the price controls uh and the dis and then since if you have price controls you have to try to regulate right the the uh uh a distribution of gas and oil you know to your you know various centers refineries uh retail outlets etc and those cause you know uh massive uh tie-ups right because if you're keeping the prices down in the United States, when prices are going up everywhere else uh, in the world for that oil, what happens? What the, you know, the logical thing that a producer does is not sell the oil, right? Stockpile it until the price goes up. And we have a, you know, we have two other pieces of evidence to say that this had nothing to do with an embargo, um, but with uh, the price controls, which is one. The other country that was embargoed by the Arabs, particularly in don't ask me why, it's the Netherlands, uh, um, never experienced gasoline lines, right? They did, they did some rationing, uh, uh, but they never experienced gasoline lines. And the other thing, and this is my favorite one, is since those price controls were dismantled by the Reagan administration, we've had, as you pointed out, refinery fires, crises, wars in the Gulf, uh, price rises and so forth. But one thing we haven't had ever again, right, uh, is uh, our gasoline lines. How do you view the first Gulf War in this analysis? Well, you know, here's the thing. People like want me to say, what was it that the governments were doing? And one thing I didn't do, and one thing I didn't do, try, didn't try to do and can't do is I mean, I guess I could try to do it, but it would require a different kind of research program, is offer up an explanation of what the government itself was doing, okay? Because I can't, the best way to put it is I can't get into the hearts and minds of the Bush administration, of the Reagan administration, of the Trump administration, and so forth. Um, so I don't know what actually motivates them, right? I, but if they believe Right. If, you know, some people articulated that's something about control of oil and so forth. If they believe that, what anal if, if that were in fact the reasons, what analysts should be doing is debunking those arguments rather than simply accepting them as the true reasons uh, for any particular conflict. Now, you, the 1990 war is, is imagined today, you know, as one, as proof, though there's not much of it, of the fact that states go to war for oil, okay? Or that oil matters strategically in war. And in this in this rendition, Saddam Hussein was ostensibly seeking control of Kuwaiti oil fields in order to dominate, you know, the Western oil markets and so forth. Uh, uh, and hence, then the United States goes to war to stop that from happening in order to guarantee the free flow of oil. There are, there are a bunch of problems with that with uh, with that analysis the the main one being and uh, 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 a a scholar from the uh, I think she she's at Naval Postgraduate Institute now Emily Meyerding right has written a book called the oil war myths where she looks at that case in particular and she sort of says you know reading the reading the Bathist documents nowhere is Saddam talking about uh-huh we're going to get the oil and then somehow we're going to, you know, be able to uh, raise the prices and bring the West to its knees and, and so forth. What Saddam really believed was he was he was uh, facing an existential crisis that the West was targeting him and his whole project in that war with consideration of all the kinds of uh, uh, 
what mistaken moves he made, right? I don't know that he was the best strategist in the world, but the real motivation for Saddam was his belief that the the regime would collapse and that he was seeking ways to kind of pr uh, prevent that, distract the West, you know, try to get some Arab states on, on his side, et cetera, but just basically create a lot of noise as a way of pushing off that end uh, but needless to say, I mean, in, in a way, he did. He he succeeded. If he believed he was going to be destroyed, uh, he, as Emily says, he kind of won the war. And Iraqis say they won the Iraq War of 1990 for that reason. But of course, that just pushed the pushed his end uh, off to 13 years later. But so, really, what I care about is how analysts write about that moment and what evidence they use in support of their own claims about oil hegemony, Saddam's control of prices. Because today, you will have analysts testify to Congress, you know, uh, the, ne the next time an Islamic uh, Islamic terrorist takes over Saudi Arabia, or if Saudi Arabia is taken over by Islamists, they're going to do exactly what Saddam did. And that would, you know, destroy Western oil markets and raise prices and so forth. And what I'm interested in doing is sort of saying, okay, can you explain how that would actually work? Yeah, you have to kind of write in a lot of self-sabotage to make some of those stories work. We constantly hear one of the reasons for our posture in the region is to prevent or deter Iran from closing the Straits of Hormuz, uh, as if there, first of all, was some kind of drawbridge there uh, and it was easy to close. And then also that uh, that Iran has some kind of uh, direct interest in in doing that, short of some kind of active uh, explosion of war. Um, right. You could imagine them doing that, right, or or not. But you could imagine that being an outcome of going to war. Right. That, that you know, that's a quite different thing. If you're a war with someone, then you know all bets are off. If the United States and China go to war, as Barry Posen says, it's quite likely that the United States would be trying to uh, embargo or, or stop China from shipping, you know, in the South China Sea. He simply says that's the right strategy in the case of war, which I think is quite unlikely. It is not sitting atop Bahrain and Saudi Arabia because in no war has been there at the at the well guaranteed any any security of supply of that of that uh, uh, substance, whatever it is, it's the shipping that matters, not not being present, you know, not being present at the wellhead. There's also a curiosity of the United States claiming to be the kind of guarantor of the global commons and protecting this free flow of oil when it chooses to try to take Iranian oil off the market through economic sanctions or the same with Venezuelan oil. Uh, these kinds of contradictions are, are curious to it, me. It's the, it, the, United, it, the, the main source for restriction of global oil supply in the past, you know, what, half, half, quarter century has been the United States. Right, Iraq, uh, Iran now, Venezuela now, not before, even when there was a lefty regime there, uh, in Libya, and so forth. Right, in, in at no time, right. This is the irony. At no time is that described as an attack on the world economy, et cetera. Right. So there's two things about that: the you know the kind of cynicism or you know double standard, but also the fact that those embargoes happen. Right. And uh, where's the, you know, where's the Western economy going into a tailspin, right? I mean, it's just, you know, it's still business as, as usual. That leads lefties to believe, again, 
you know, it's kind of correlation does not prove causation. That leads some lefties to say, uh-huh, the whole point of U.S. power in the Persian Gulf is to restrict the supply of oil. It's been doing it, you know, the argument goes from the 1930s until today to restrict the price of oil and hence keep the prices high. And why would they be doing that? Well, because they're lefties. It's the coalition of oil companies and weapons manufacturers that somehow control the state. I don't know how that happens, but you know that's just a little bit of detail that they don't, you know, bother to explain. Uh, that's the pursuit of this policy of keeping of, keep, of of reducing supply to secure the profits of the oil companies and and oil countries, which are then are going to buy the weapons. And every once in a while more lefties other lefties will go you need a war to keep that whole you know cycle going so you know my you know my problem with that is i'm i'm a naive kind of uh empiricist i i would just like some evidence that says here's the state's person that has said this or here's here's the evidence of interest group you know occluding to do this uh mostly i know the evidence i find is you know kind of undermines those kinds of arguments uh during the 2003 iraq war the oil majors were all against that war, basically. It made no sense to them. It was just going to disrupt things. They thought it was a disaster, right? But that never bothers, you know, the left, who back since those days, even before the 73 crisis that we were talking about earlier, where it, it, this belief that the United States had to act to secure resources of all kinds, right? And the left would find documents that, you know, from the Eisenhower administration, say, that said, you know, we're worried about we're worried about raw materials and we need policies. And there were commissions and so forth. That is proof positive to the left that really what the United States try to do is control resources. So given that they've had that arguments in the 1950s, they ref they refuse, you know, to let it go. So, uh, you know, I give the example in my book, among many examples of a, a guy I quite admire, but, you know, Noam Chomsky, who since, you know, 1968 has argued, you know, really what the U.S. is trying to do is is control the oil of the Persian Gulf. And I can never, you know, I can never get him or anyone else to explain to me exactly what, you know, where, how, how does that control work? Let's talk a little bit about the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. From my perspective, U.S. leaders often seem eager to bend over backwards for the sake of this relationship. And you make it clear in the book, it's, it seems to be doing us more harm than good. The Obama administration, to take a, a, a recent egregious example that's, that actually continues to be a problem today, tried to satiate Riyadh's objections to U.S. nuclear diplomacy with Iran by promising to support their bombing campaign in Yemen. Now, best I can tell, the war hasn't done the Saudis any good, it certainly hasn't served U.S. interests. And in the meantime, we've been complicit in imposing probably the most horrendous humanitarian crisis in the world right now on an already vulnerable population in Yemen. You know, the immensity of the costs of this one example, and it's really just one of us bending to Saudi Arabia's will, um, it's all the more outrageous if, you, if it's true, as you argue, that the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia is not even an asset in this kind of geopolitical sense. So what is the nature of the relationship? And how does it differ from the common perception? Well, the common perception, right? But the common perception is now only 20 years old, as I document in my book. The common perception is somehow the United States has a, has a deal 
right? Tom Friedman calls it a deal. He tries to be it for whatever reason. I mean, we know about Tom Friedman, but but other folks would sort of say the essence of the United States Saudi Arabia special relationship is a bargain uh, of oil for security. We promise to protect the Saudis, and in return, they promise. Well, here's the problem. I don't know exactly what they promised to do other than sell oil, uh, and which they're going to do no matter what. I don't think we needed to do anything special for them in order to sell that oil. And that's something that Murray Edelman said back decades ago. But so there's this idea that, you know, well, anyway, I just said what idea was. What I didn't realize and discovered this in my book, and I actually start, you know, b- back in the in 2010, 2011, I published another uh, another book about the origins of the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And because everyone was talking at that time about the special relationship, oil for security, I kind of bought into that, you know, framing of the relationship as well. Well, what I discovered was um, that oil for security deal or relationship, framing it that way, no one had ever written about that or or thought it existed or documented it in any way until 9-11, right? It's like six months after 9-11, uh, at a moment really when U.S.-Saudi relations are at their nadir, right? Uh, you, if, you probably remember back in those days, there were, you know, folks at the Pentagon arguing that we should we should take these guys over. They're the cause of, you know, the bombing, et cetera. You could, you could imagine that stuff. And, and then the pro-Saudi forces in the United States, uh, you know, went, worked overtime, right, to kind of uh, 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 st- steal that relationship under, under what was seen as a threat, right? And, and for those folks who care about the Saudis, they didn't want to see the Al Saud go and something else happen. But perfectly, maybe a perfectly pragmatically reasonable strategy because, you know, my friend Greg Goss uh, today sort of says, you know, and he's like the preeminent analyst of the United States-Saudi relationship. And his argument is there's no reason... I caution against folks trying to do regime change in Saudi Arabia because we've not done it any better anywhere else, and it's likely to cause us more of a problem, et cetera. But here's the deal. That idea of a U.S. strategic relationship trading oil for security is an invention of 9-11. And lo and behold, 20 years later, everyone just states it over and over again as fact. And that deal goes back to 1945, it is said. And, you know, when I went and tried to show, okay, so where's this deal? What is it that Roosevelt supposedly promised to uh, Ibn Saud? And what is it that Ibn Saud promised to Roosevelt? And, you know, I show that there's there's nothing there. We just impose that interpretation on that earlier moment. And you could see it's like, you, you know, once you see that, you can see it's it's just like this, you know, patriotic gesture or or uh, a propaganda point. Um, you know, and there's this famous picture of Roosevelt meeting Ibn Saud on the destroyer USS Quincy with uh, Colonel Eddie, a U.S. military spy a- academic but who who grew up in Lebanon to missionary parents and knew Arabic as the great translator. Uh, uh, in that moment, that picture shown everywhere. If you go to the Saudi embassy in the United States, 
Um, it's it's on both sides of their big auditorium, and that picture supposedly symbolizes what the Saudis think. They want they want to tell the Americans all the time that our relationship is solid and it goes back, and it's not just about oil and and so forth. That we're that we're friends, something like that. And that's really an invention of nine eleven. It's believed, despite the implausibility of it, the lack of evidence. And in fact, it works like a snowball. I've now been reading analyses, right, that sort of say, no, 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 the special relationship doesn't start in 1945. It's 1943, because at that moment, the Americans promised the Saudis 10 rifles for, you know, for, you know, during the midst of World War II, et cetera. And they really believe, they really believe that the United States was protecting the Saudis from, call it 1943, 1944, 1945, when it's just not true in the following way. Great Britain remained the uh, preserver of the Al Saud's um, independence through the 40s. It, it, was the, it was the British and not the United States that was training the Saudi military force uh, and so forth. We refused constantly Saudi requests for training, uh, for weapons. Uh, uh, for a treaty of alliance, because, you know, Ibn Saud recognized that he had this oil, that there were these larger Arab neighbors. And, you know, this Saudi state was not that strong and it wanted the protection of the United States. And the United States said no. And the British continued to defend it. Yet in the minds of folks who were so committed to this idea that there's a special U.S.-Saudi relationship from 1945, the evidence that the United States refused the Treaty of Alliance leads them to say, aha, see it? It's a secret or tacit agreement and so forth, for which there is no evidence. You made reference to essentially the, the discourse among analysts in D.C., um, and you know that presents another kind of controversial problem with this because it isn't just U.S. leaders and elected officials that kind of bend to the Saudi uh, will here. Um, you depict the foreign policy establishment and often a kind of subservient or unquestioning press as kind of gullible promoters of these myths and essentially often PR outfits for friendly oil-rich regimes in the region. And that presents, like I say, a kind of controversial wrinkle in this story, because I, I live and work in DC as well. I know many of the people that make these arguments. I certainly think they're making them uh, earnestly. On the other hand, it's also true that there's a, a lot of uh, cash floating around this city. If I can uh, quote you from the book uh, at, a, at a bit of length, if you'll permit me, because this makes it seem to me that one problem we have here is a problem of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. And that's why the status quo persists. So the Saudi regime, you write, quote, financed the federal government's budget deficit, spent billions on U.S. designed development project, bankrolled the CIA's covert wars, kept General Dyna Dynamics assembly lines humming, contributed cash to foundations, centers, charities, universities, K Street, and the paid-to-think tanks, and aided the Pentagon's bottom line. And I read that and I think, well, geez, sure, if you please the right people, you needn't worry if the arguments for a close U.S.-Saudi relationship are weak and incoherent. Uh, so some folks would say that's a conspiracy theory. And, you know, or I'm, I'm, I'm leaning toward a conspiracy theory or an interest-based uh, argument. And I would respond to that as, you know, all that, 
all that is true. The money is true. Uh, uh, the resources are true. I met, you know, folks in Riyadh. I met uh, arms salesmen in Riyadh who told me, you know, literally told me, you know, the Saudis can't use the weapons they're paying for. But what these weapons, but what they're doing by paying for those weapons is paying back the United States, right? You know, for 1990, 91, this is when I was there in the late 90s. And what they're doing for the Clinton administration at that time was reducing the costs of the weapons that the Pentagon itself needed at a time of, you know, budget shortfalls uh, in the United States. All that is true, right? And you have these earnest, as you said, these earnest analysts, you know, from uh, from the Middle East Institute to let alone the think tanks that the Saudis themselves fund, but, you know, Brookings, wherever else Saudi's money is being spent, all this like kind of earnest commitment to the importance of the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Like Noam Chomsky says, I know you believe that. Okay, so I'm, you know, I'm not saying you only believe that because the Saudis are spending money, but you wouldn't be where you were if you if you thought something else. And I, and I have like perfect, you know, uh, evidence for that, which is, again, I, I alluded to an earlier book I wrote. It was called America's Kingdom, the myths of the Saudi oil frontier. And it was really about what was the what was oil development like in eastern Saudi Arabia in the 30s, 40s and 50s when Americans talk about we were the you know we were the kindest the we were we were so far different from british imperialism etc the saudis loved the american oil firm the oil firm loved the saudis etc this was a standard trope and i just you know went and looked at the documents to see you know what actually existed to cut to the chase um i was invited by the middle east institute okay to come uh, talk about the future of us saudi relations this was in like in 2003 Right at that moment when I told you uh, that uh, um, uh, the the relationship was rocky, the Council on Foreign Relations had just come out with a Saudi subsidized book about the U.S. Saudi relationship called "Thicker Than Oil" that demonstrated that you know the argument was it isn't just about oil, but the Saudis are great in all sorts of ways, and they're close allies of ours, and we'd be dumb to over overturn them. I was invited to speak in that panel, and within 24 hours, I was called back by the guy who invited me, and he said, we've made a mistake. <laughs> you know, So I was disinvited from that panel, but, and then they said, but you know, here's what we'll do. We'll do a book launch for you as, as, a, as a, you know, a consolation. So for months, my, my publicist and I tried, you know, to find out when we were doing our book launch. Never heard from them again, right? So, you know, my experience is the only critics of my books about Saudi Arabia so far have been uh, those think tanks that are, you know, uh, close to the Saudis for a lot of reasons. Now, again, they certainly understand it in strategic terms. What I'm arguing is the strategic terms themselves are wrong. Let's take the clearest, like the, the, the most famous one. Because uh, it's still articulated today, which is something like this, because we need the oil. I don't know. Some people are now saying we don't need the oil anymore because of fracking. But, you know, the general argument goes, because we need the oil, uh, we're close to the Saudis. We have to be close to the Saudis. And we have uh, 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 misconstrued where our real interests in the Middle East lie, right? So from the time of Ibn Saud and uh, a President Truman, until today, 
there are centers of the Pentagon, defense folks, think tankers, scholars who argue, you know, it's really dumb that the United States support Israel. Because by supporting Israel, we're just bringing all this like, you know, trouble upon us when our real interests are with the Arabs and the Persian Gulf. Now, this was a line that the oil companies, needless to say, embraced. It was a line that every Saudi leader, you know, has argued uh, for decades. And, and you know, though I'm not a fan of uh, bin Salman, I do say in the book, bin Salman did something remarkable, right? Which is for decades, because of this idea that somehow our interests with Israel and our interests with Saudi Arabia clashed, which I don't think is true, but because folks believe that, the main the main source of opposition to the U.S.-Saudi relationship for what decades has been yes six lefties, uh, but but uh, why not? and and you know the pro-Israel community right uh, for de- you know for decades and bin Salman solve this problem. It's remarkable, right? He just ended the main source of opposition besides, you know, let's say right-wing defense intellectuals to uh, uh, at, at a moment like 9-11. But the main source of opposition to the U.S.-Saudi relationship has been pro-Israeli groups because the Saudis were perceived as uh, rightly so as funding uh, Islamists and so forth around the world, let alone in the Middle East. Well, bin Salman, has has solved this problem. And so if you go to Wineup and read their materials now, they are main defenders of of Saudi Arabia at the present time. I, I don't want to call him brilliant. He's not, but an accidental brilliance in basically reducing the main source of opposition to US Saudi uh a close US Saudi ties because you know code pink and the left wing groups are just not gonna deliver the goods. In other words, they know how to play the game. Given uh, given the insights in your book, what should our relationship with Saudi Arabia be and what should our posture in the region be, at least as far as energy security is concerned? Well, here's the thing. Um, one of the texts I relied on is it's overly dense. No one really knows the book uh, because it was such an overdense academic book. Uh, was was a book called When Nations Clash, and what this what its author Ronnie Lipschitz showed, and and he actually had to have his results explained in a forward by John Holdren, who would go on to become President Obama's science advisor uh, uh, decades later. But what Holdren said was what sh- what Ronnie Lipschitz shows is concerns about oil go up and down, as we noted some you know uh, minutes past. Embargoes are happening, right? Uh, um, the Suez Canal is cut off, and no one is like worried about you know we're you know the the West is going to come, the West is going to collapse. Only two folks at the Council on Foreign Relations uh, uh, thought that uh, the the Americans the the Americans were abandoning the Persian Gulf by not responding uh, uh, directly to the Iranian aggression on the world economy when local proxies bombed Saudi sites. So concern about oil goes up and down. And this is one of these moments where folks just make the argument, you know, we don't need the Saudi oil anymore and that's going to become it it's it's a wrong argument in in the following sense. It's true the United States does not need the Saudi oil, uh, but that doesn't matter because again, it's a world market, right? So oil has to flow somewhere and if if oil is cut off from Saudi Arabia, prices are going to go up everywhere, etc. So it's it's wrong in some kind of realpolitik version. Uh, of, of things, 
But we don't really have to do anything to secure oil from Saudi Arabia. They're going to sell it, right? Every Saudi regime has sold it. They've they've done nothing. Oh, as Maury Edelman asked, and it's never been uh, uh, supplied an answer, though he's now uh, dead. He said, show me the Saudis doing something special for the United States, right? Apart from just selling this stuff. Like, are they are they pricing it lower? Or are they producing more than they otherwise would, et cetera? All that is a fiction. So we, so the Saudis are just going to sell their oil. As I show in my book, uh, if the Saudis are overthrown and it becomes the Islamic Emirate of Arabia, we're pretty confident that Islamist leader is going to sell the oil, right? You know, uh, and, and or Bin Laden himself had an oil policy. You could read it, and what did he talk about? He was gonna he was gonna sell all the oil he could at the highest price he could uh, in order to you know uh, benefit the Ummah and those the resources for the Ummah. So the one thing we wouldn't have to worry about is the oil. But if you think about all the other things, right, that are likely to happen uh, 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 if Saudi if the Saud are overthrown. In, a, in an Islamic Emirate of Arabia is created, right? You can learn a lot about what, you know, about what drives policy, right? Because as I say in my book, it would mean another friendly regime transiting from ally to enemy, right? which is exactly what happened in Venezuela. It's exactly what happened in Iran. It's exactly what happened in Iraq. What we know about all those places is they wanted to sell as much oil as they can. So it's oil's not the problem. I guess the best way to put it is it's the resources that oil provides these regimes and the policies of those regimes in return for challenging U.S. preferences in the region that are the problem, right? So, you know, um, I'm not a foreign policy analyst and I'm on the left. I would not have a problem if the United States uh, reduced its presence in the region, but you could see the logic of not doing so if if what you care about is uh, a, a, a region ordered along American preferences, right? So you don't want them, you don't want them funding the opposition. You don't want them floating money to Hamas, whoever it is that, you know, you care about. You, you don't want them resisting U.S. preferences. And that's and that's really, and let alone, right, uh, it means, think about the cutoff of, they won't be buying weapons, you know, from the United States and so forth. They're going to be aiding enemies of the United States, et cetera. Those, those are the problems that are, are, are the, the structural ones. Uh, if, the Al Saud uh, fall, and that's why folks at the Bush, you know, School of Government in Texas don't want it to happen, uh, and so forth. I think we would survive, right? I mean, uh, United States's, you know, uh, existence was not threatened by the choices the Venezuelans were making, you know, to support uh, uh, other lefty regimes in the region, et cetera. And we, and the one thing we did know is we were getting the oil, right? Because you know, Venezuela has been tightly tightly integrated into U.S. oil markets for decades. And uh, all those other countries would be happy to sell oil uh, to the United States. They just won't be happy in in kind of uh, uh, joining the, the U.S. project unless it changed. Well, Bob, thanks for writing an excellent book and for making the time today. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, and again, I, it was a dream because, you know, 
truly, Cato's one of the only places that are, are willing to kind of think outside uh, the box on this question. It's a fun, lonely place to work. <laughs> Take good Thanks. care, okay? 